Welcome along to another Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Kushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, as always, the lead writer for the Leaders Performance Institute, John Porch. John, hello. Hello, David. How's it going? I am very well, and I'm excited to learn that we're delving into the sport of rugby for this uh, latest episode. That's right. Recently, I was chatting to Rob Vickerman, the ex-captain of England Sevens, who was forced to retire at 29 just a couple of years ago. Rob has been involved with transition talks with the uh, Rugby Players Association, the RPA. He's actually an alumni representative for them. And some listeners may recall the RPA from our chat earlier this year with Caroline Guthrie of that very organisation. And Rob was an ideal interviewee, David, and not only because he came into Leaders HQ. Uh, since retiring, sadly, once again at 29, um, he's founded Workaply, a health and wellbeing consultancy that takes messages from sport and theory and implements them into business. And in addition to that, he also has a first-class degree in leadership and management and postgraduate qualifications in positive psychology and coaching psychology. Sounds like a fascinating listen. What else do we need to know? Well, I don't want to spoil the surprise, but Rob talks about the five fundamental areas of well-being, so get your notepad ready. And he also talks about the importance of modern players learning by doing, as he puts it. So he's not just all about whiteboards and highbrow chat when he walks through the door. Get your notepads ready as well, listener because uh, here are some dates for your diary. The 10th and 11th of July this year, Soldier Field, Chicago. It's our next Sport Performance Summit. It's coming soon, and you can check out the Leaders in Sport website to uh, get all the latest on speakers, sessions, and what we have planned for what should be a terrific couple of days in the Windy City. We're also heading to Florida at the end of August and we've got our big event in London to wrap up the year of performance events in November. So there's plenty going on. We also have another edition of the uh, Performance Journal uh, coming out uh, very soon as well for Leaders Performance Institute members. To become a member, it's the website as well, www.leadersinsport.com. Right, John, all set? Let's go. Rob, welcome to the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, John. I'm I'm intrigued and excited to be here. Fantastic, and of course, welcome to our plush boardroom here at Leaders HQ. Hopefully, we won't get kicked out while we're chatting. No, and we're getting gazed upon by the world's leading thoughts around the leadership performance, staring down at us in their black bordered pictures. What a boardroom it is! Oh, yes, the all singing, all powerful performance journal. Today, of course, the subject is um, mental well-being with particular regard to, to rugby, of course, uh, something you're very familiar with as a former player yourself. Yeah, very much so. Both sides of the fence now, I guess, having um, kind of jumped across the way to now be a commentator and pundit and you know, one of these people that still try and keep myself as involved as possible in the game and with that and the RPA alumni representative. So still like to think I help out a little bit to an organisation that's been great for me in how I've finished the game, sadly through injury, at 29. So... Yeah, of course, and that's very much on the agenda today. Perhaps we could start by talking about transition talks. What are they and what is your involvement in these transition talks? Yeah, well, it's a wonderful concept to come up by the RPA. have basically understood that a lot of the things that have been said by ex-players and, and even current players is about the ability to really transfer into the world of, of business or the world outside of sport. Because when you are in the world of sport, it is, it is a bubble. It's also a massive cliche and, and what is understood by that bubble is probably what it'd be better getting into, but you basically have your whole schedule, your whole performance pathway charted out for you, mapped out by an absolute plethora of these experts 
in their fields, people, physio backgrounds, medical backgrounds, nutritionists, physiotherapists, strength and conditionists, massage therapists, and then above that you have the hierarchy of coaches from the forwards coach, specifically to the type of player, and backs coach, defence coach, attack coach, overriding team performance liaison, you have the team manager who takes care of all of the kit to be facilitated, so you can really see already that this ability to really transfer into a world where none of that happens and you are solely in charge of your own schedule, your own agenda, your own thought press, your own performance, suddenly there is a real need to support that and certainly the RPA have been at the forefront um, of, of doing so and with that they think getting ex-players in to talk to the current players about the transition and what they've been through personally is, is the way to do it. So how did you personally become involved then Rob? Uh, I was asked by the RPA, someone recently out of the game, so I'm now 32, retired at 29 as I mentioned, so I had six months or so whilst I was still contracted playing 15s to really ascertain what it was I wanted to do and, and with those conversations largely aimed at the RPA saying what opportunities do you guys have out there that I can develop in. Uh, I was one of these players who tend to fall into two categories as a player. You either not the greatest player and know that your career perhaps won't last as long as you would like, of which I put my hands up, I think I was one of them, but through sheer hard will and dedication I ended up making a career out of it for 10 years. Or you're the person who gets injured early and sees firsthand how the conversations turn towards contracts being ripped up, um, having negotiations with other clubs perhaps when you're not surplus, uh, you're surplus to requirements for the current club you're at. So the train of thought means that players only really think about what is next after sport if they're not at the forefront of the game or they've had a st the stint of injury. Now, I was both of those. So at 21, I had an ACE operation. At 22, I had a revision surgery and the same injury after 20 minutes. So straight away, as soon as that happens, and you're staring down the barrel of 21 months out from rugby in what is potentially a 10-year career, it's a significant chunk. So from that moment on, I've always said, OK, I'm going to be someone who's at the forefront of my development. And if I had to retire tomorrow, what would I do? And that was a question I continually asked myself throughout the whole career, certainly after the injuries. And with that, the RPA was a big part of it because they are the people that can help facilitate that. They can put you in the right place. I got my first degree through their involvement with Newcastle Business School. So for me, I was someone that really championed the RPA. And I like to think that there's someone that can show that when successful in your transition and, and throw yourself into it, you can have really good output. So how is your experience then? Uh, obviously retiring at 29, how has that fed into the content behind what you put into your transition talks? I think it's first and foremost a reflection of it that it's very difficult at times speaking in front of what were your old teammates because there is a degree of vulnerability that you seldom ever see or feel as a sportsman. Certainly now as a commentator and someone who's working in business, you have to put yourself out there and go through the emotions you had whilst ending the career. Um, and that that could be quite a scary place to be, I guess, because you've got to talk honestly and openly. I'm the type of person, helps me a Yorkshireman, that I do say what I think. I don't think too much about what I say. So being in the front of the, the rest of the team and, and almost eyeing them up, looking directly into them, saying, you know, this is, this is really genuine. I have been through what you guys are soon to be going through. But then at the same time, people in the room, the England Sevens transition talk I did, they were 18, 19, 20. And all I kept thinking about was, there's this guy, this old boy in front of me, who's had his career... I'm at the very start of mine, and we're already talking about the end of it. So very, very difficult in a sense, you've got to really broaden that conversation from those 18-year-olds fresh out of school to perhaps the 32, 33-year-olds older than me being sat in the room listening to the same thing. So it was difficult in a sense, and what I did was just have to be honest and broad. So I looked at things about financial 
strengths, financial pressures, um, and this is where I guess the degree in positive psychology helps because I started breaking down what are the five fundamental areas of well-being and going a bit into them. Five fundamental areas of well-being. Could you perhaps elaborate on that? Yeah, so the New Economic Foundation have basically suggested there is a model that can be used to look at how people declare themselves as well. Now, the biggest thing is most people will generally associate with one of them. So if you look at it, the broad spectrum of the five, being social, community, physical health, financial health, and then career, they're the five. Now, each one of those is its own entity, and you could speak for hours on each one of them. However, the statistics declare that only 7% of people are flourishing in all five of those elements. 67% are flourishing in one, but only 7% only are flourishing in all five of them. So really, going off the bat, you're thinking you've got to broaden that awareness to understand what do each one of those mean to me, how can I talk about it from the sporting perspective, but then how can I also get across the messages of transitioning into those five. And I'll never declare to have the answers for all of them, but the best coaches in the world don't know the answers, they just ask the questions, and it's up to that person to then reflect and to think about it. And when you're speaking to these players, do you ever get the sense that they are aware of any problems that they may have, or... Do they perceive themselves as being well? What, what do you find, Rob? I think there's always going to be a bit of a cover-up when you speak to players eye-to-eye -eye about it because certainly when you, when you take them out of that environment after their self-reflection, that they do perhaps open up. And interestingly, exactly as happened after the transition talk, um, a little bit of, you know, your classic meeting room environments where everyone was saying, oh, well done, thanks for that, bit of a bit of a clap, whatever. And it was only probably until five or ten minutes after that talk that two or three guys came across and had those little individual conversations. And you know you know that one or two of the strand, and you're talking for 40 minutes, so not all of it's going to sink in, round about 3% of what I actually say will be retained. So you know round about, after five or ten minutes, those conversations are the things that they're going to take away from it. And two of them were financial, and one of them was a bit more holistic about well-being, and one was career, actually. So of those things that people were thinking about, they were quite broad, quite different. Um, but ultimately, it's only until you dig further, which is why I believe the transition talks, as wonderful as they are, is the first point. And the next point is the follow-up, where you actually sit down as a coach individually and say, OK, they're the five circles. We'll talk about flourishing. Where can you improve? What do you think is your strength? And how do we get there? So the fact that they come and sort you out uh, five or ten minutes after you were speaking, does that somehow speak to the stigma that still exists around mental well-being and some of the stresses that are upon athletes and rugby players in particular. Yeah, I think it is, John. And I think when you are in that environment, you know, it'd be very, very gutsy to stand up there and then and say, I've, I've got a bit of a problem. You know, you see it in the classic alcohol anonymous type conversations where people must mock that person standing up and saying that they have got a problem. But yeah, definitely. The bravado is still going to be there. Of course it is. There's also the fact that it was aimed to be quite interactive, but it ended up being one person talking rather than, as would usually be on the conferences and, and, and seminars that I host, a genuine conversation throughout. So much more interplayer conversation. You know, we've talked about these five elements of well-being. It's a simple three-minute exercise then. Well, which one do you think is your best and which do you think is your worst and how can we bridge that gap there? So, yeah, I think there's so much more to be done on it. But to answer the question, yes, there's still a little bit of a stigma there of course there is because they're, they're alpha males in an environment where more often than not you don't want to show weakness and you're standing there in front of them talking and sharing your own experiences and offering advice would that have benefited you at the time when you retired to have someone standing in front of you 
being able to share their experiences. Yeah, I don't know who it wouldn't benefit because if I were in that position again, it would be a way of reflecting and a massive on my self-awareness. If you're getting asked questions, if you're hearing other people's opinions, uh, be it right or wrong, it's a way of getting you to think, getting you to really become self-aware. And, and if you are spending that time, then it's going to be valuable. And even if you're trying to work out what isn't an issue, it's still going to be productive. And who are some of the people that you go and speak to, some of the groups? Are they all pro teams? Are they international teams, domestic? Yeah, so the way that the RPA Transitions Talks work are that it tends to be an ex-player of that club. So if my career was Leeds, Newcastle, England 7s. I've been asked to do the England 7s ones, as, as we mentioned. I've also been asked to do the Newcastle ones, but it couldn't quite happen at the back end of the year. So I think there needs to be that association directly with the player that this person was in this room, preferably not that long ago. And then that is a, is a conversation that can be a little bit more absorbed, certainly when you're talking to the younger guys who are very much green in the whole process of professional sport. So the attachment tends to be an ex-player. And then also it's just a way of, of potentially developing that relationship because you know locally and geographically you're then accessible. And what sort of scene greets you? What sort of mood? Are the players obliged to be there? Do they feel that they have to be there or are they there of their own accord? I have yet to go to many rugby clubs where they're not particularly fed up with the amount of meetings that they have. I think, you know, across the board, they are, if you look at their learning styles, they are pretty much 99% all kinesthetic. They want to be learning by doing. Don't get many rugby players or even sports people generally who are read-write, who like to sit down, maybe audible to a certain degree. So the more interactive you can make it, the better. Um, I think there's always going to be that little bit of a barrier going, oh, here we go, we're going to get a bit another insight from, from a person be it good, be it bad, what I'm going to take from it, and, and straight away almost putting that barrier up, as I mentioned before. So I think what you want in that environment is to see the inquisitive eyes, is to see that person who really wants to know more, not necessarily about me, just more about themselves, and get them to really reflect on it. And, and as I see, because I do a lot of this in schools, it's quite a, a blindsided aspect now that the younger generation coming through, and I'm talking 13, 14, 15-year-olds, you would think as a speaker in front of the room that you've lost them after three minutes, that they're not engaged whatsoever. And the amount of times I've spoke in assemblies or classrooms or whatever, and then afterwards, the guy that I thought was completely discontent, not wanting to be there at all, has the most powerful, incisive question. So you really got to assume nothing as a speaker in those environments because it might look like they're not bothered, but actually, they're like a sponge. So in what sort of ways do you try and make it interactive then when you're speaking to any given group? Uh, it's all about those little micro-conversations. So if it is your classic boardroom as we're in now, you get the flip chart out, as many people detest them. I'm not a big presentation on the PowerPoint front. I like to get people to interact with worksheets and documents like that. You get them to, to draw the circles, the five elements of well-being, for example. I also talk a lot about the energy pie, which again is another representation by way of a figure, that if you have 100% of your energy, what are you most allocating to? And there's loads of little tips and tricks. They're actually called positive psychology interventions or PPIs that get people thinking in a different way. That's It's interactive, it's conversational, it breaks down barriers, it puts people in awkward situations, all of which help in a development session. And as a rugby player yourself, former rugby player, from that club or that environment, that can help no end, surely. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it gives that little bit of comfort knowing that actually I know what these meetings can entail. I actually know, first off, how much you don't want to be in this room, but give me 35 minutes, we'll see we're at the end of it. And then it's a bit of a challenge to, the, to myself as a speaker as well. So you do find yourself understanding their position. And the day I actually gave the talk, they'd done three hours of training and they had the afternoon off at, after lunchtime. So I was like, uh, as much as this is important, I'm not going to 
keep you in here for two, three hours because I know you have your rest and recovery, which is equally as important. So, you know, take bits away from it, go and have reflect. And it might well be that in their coffee shop culture later on in the afternoon, they had a chat about it. So, yeah, it was very much an individual way of dealing with information, I guess. So during a session, you can actually feel the mood of the room change as they see the value of what it is you might be saying? Yeah, and it works both ways. If you see them perhaps drifting off, then you've got to pull them back in and, and understand what it will take. Like I mentioned before, they're not creatures that like to sit down, so it's a case of getting them bounding around. Um, big fan of putting sticky charts up around the room and get them you know, moving as well as activating. So you get an active mind, an active body, it all contributes to a positive session, I find. Right, so what, what might be some of the activities then that you'd get them to do to try and get them to engage with what you're trying to say? Uh, fair few of these actually. You know, we're not giving too much away, John, with these sessions. But it, it one of these, you can have lots of different stimuli. So bring a tennis ball into a room, bring a deck of cards into a room. Suddenly, it turns into games rather than a seminar. And as soon as you start showing those interactions, and actually always try and equate it to a reason that you're doing it for, but it just completely changes the way that people are wired up. And if you get these very active, very enthusiastic, actually yellow, sunshine yellow type personalities, so highly geared, highly energized, you get them showing their thinking in a very active way, then you get a you get a productive outcome from it. So you have to be on your wits, I guess, and change your style. And, and that's still a bit of a experience of which I'm still learning about. You know, I've, I've been in rooms with some broker and shipping companies, for example, who have been in the same job for 50 years and you're there trying to develop them in this new way of working and communicating. Of course, there's going to be barriers there. So you try and crack the tough nuts perhaps by doing it a different way. And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. You can't control that. You know? With a specific regard to rugby, how long have you been doing the transition talks now? Uh, I did the England Sevens one uh, round about in January, actually, on the back of them coming in from a Southern Hemisphere tour. Slightly jet-lagged, I might add. Um, um, and it's probably something that's going to continue for the next 12 months. I know the RPA, again, mentioning how big they are on making sure this transition is focused. And there's now a transition RPA rep. So whereas there's personal development managers for each club, there's now someone solely, Josh Frape, slowly in position to get this transition element right. Because if you think of what 500, 600 members at any point, you're going to be losing 10% of that squad potentially through injury or contract renewal. That is a whole heap of people to be trying to transition out of the game, knowing full well that one in four of those people will be having like the mental health issues. So difficult job, but it's something the RPA do, do well in. So do you feel that that means that when there's those people in place and you're discussing the potential content, is there scope for it to evolve then? Uh, do you see it changing continually yeah and it has to because it's such a vast subject that you can talk already as we have for a significant amount of time talking about the five elements of well-being for example then there's the flip side about well-being of things been not so great so your stress your anxiety your depression sad symptoms and, and they're forever needing to be adapted because people don't know it's like concussion in rugby as well obviously a topical point but not much is known about the brain. So how we could ever think that we can cover every subject and everyone's individual symptoms, side effects and route through it, of course you couldn't. And you mentioned the professional development managers mm. from the RPA that work with the clubs. What is the nature of your conversations with them? What, what sort of questions are raised? What sort of topics are discussed? Uh, much more in a consultancy way now, I guess, because myself and Chris Bentley, who were ex-players from the South and North, respectively, we are representing the alumni. So having conversations with players, as I'm lucky enough to do now when I go around the grounds and certainly speaking to the Sevens fraternity, of what are the most pressing issues? What do you feel are represented in what the RPA currently offer 
and where could they develop a potential offering for exactly like we mentioned that transition through so a lot of conversations happening with players who are going through it and a bid to not only support them but to learn the lessons to develop the current system to help the people coming through um, and the reason why I guess I kind of put my hand up first and foremost when it went out to the wider rugby world and in the UK domestically of why do you want to be an RPA alumni representative because at 18 coming through the system the academy system as it was I was the first real cohort of player to not ever have to do anything other than rugby so from 18 on an associate professional contract through to 29 when I retired I knew nothing other than rugby as a working practice albeit work experience and modules and education accrued all the way through it I didn't and people now are finishing the game having known nothing different from the age of 16 which is a very very different concept to people three four five years older than me who have always had that association with either business with university or with a different type of network perhaps even from amateurism yeah of course because for those who don't know rugby union was amateur up until around what 1995 yeah that's incredible to think back on that and Rob, what are some of the considerations you make when trying to connect with somebody? Obviously, you're talking to people that could be teenagers, 18-year-olds, or they could be veterans who are even older than you now. Uh, what are some of the things that you're trying to consider before you try and approach them to try and make that connection with them? I think it's the understanding of you've been in that position, and right through from school children through to senior professionals, you don't start as an advanced, developed professional everybody starts the same way you know and you've got to learn those lessons all the way through some people excel that program and go a lot quicker than others but ultimately it's a process it's a learning process you talk about com contemplative change anything that needs to be done in the world of change has to be first of all understood so when people are generally looking for a speaker to come in and to try and resonate with a with a, a range range of say 20 to 60 you've got to really break it down to well what is the point of me being here what messages can people ascertain from it and how can that help them going forward? And if you keep that in your mind, then you always hope that that information will be at the forefront of what you're talking about and what they're taking away. And what if you're talking to people, or talking to players in fact, who perhaps feel they don't have a problem? Now, maybe they haven't identified it, maybe they're denying it to some extent, but what do you do when you encounter people who tell you, look Rob, I haven't got a problem, I, I know there isn't an issue here? Yeah, and it's a really quick assessment, I guess, on the basis that I read a lot around fixed mindset and growth mindset. So Carol Dweck talks eminently about this process. And, and that's exactly what you find. I mentioned before some of these shipping companies who still call their exec team sir because it is that too much of a traditional industry. You get people 40, 50 years into their profession. They don't think change is going to happen. They don't want change to happen. They don't think they need to be changed. So... Yeah, there are always challenges, and as I mentioned before, it makes a better speaker and a better coach and a better facilitator if you know that that can happen. And like it comes down to, you control what you can control. Are you going to really get into their mind and change them if they're so adamantly fixed mindset? You're not. So in some ways, you've got to balance, well, how much energy am I spending on the disruptive element of this session, or how much energy am I going to engage with the development element, the people who genuinely believe they can get better, and like Maslow's hierarchy, you know, you, you're always aiming for that self-actualization. So if you get to that bigger percentage of the room, then ultimately you're gonna have a better impact. So it happens, of course it does. Can you do anything about it? Sometimes no, and that's again a realization. And Rob, you had retirement thrust upon you, of course, at uh, 29. What was your initial reaction? Negative, I presume, but how did that evolve with the passing of days, weeks, and months, and eventually years, I guess? Yeah. Really good question, actually. And one of these, 
I do try and talk about a little bit because you don't want to ever think your career is going to end through injury, but ultimately it happens an incredible amount now, and certainly this season alone, countless occasions where people have retired within a week of an injury. I mean, that's how significant it is. So your first first thought generally is a little bit of frustration, a bit of confusion, a bit of I'm more like remorse going, wow, if that is the end of my career, if I've got a surgeon telling me that, I kind of wish I did this a bit differently. Um, from the flip side but then I was always someone that looked at the positives of any environment that I knew certainly after my knee injuries that my career was finite there was going to be an end point I didn't particularly want it to be at 29 with a neck injury but at the same time you know I had probably eight or nine concussions in my last two years that got me thinking I've got to be careful I've got a young family I've got to think about not only what's best for me in a selfish way but also about supporting and looking after them so you go through a whole range of emotions, really, and it's still something you kind of have conversations with people about now that you don't ever really end up understanding it fully. But ultimately, what I try and do is look at the positive. So, yeah, OK, I ended my career early, but I had a wonderful career. I met some great people and I travelled to some fantastic places. And, and it's only really in digging a bit deeper in terms of the performance elements, you, you actually realise that what was normal to me for 10 years in a sports career is very much not normal. You know, the working environment from what I see in terms of performance will never be a rugby environment you're never going to have that wonderful sense of weekly goals of being with such incredible human beings going through the highs and lows and emotion roller coaster that sport faces but that for me was fulfillment because I didn't reflect and think back of going I want that again I think well, it was great I experienced it what's the next challenge and, and, and that positivity I guess is what does help and some people aren't necessarily looking enough to be able to look at it like that. And for some, it's far more psychological. So it's always a difficult question. It's something I continue to ask my peers that are now retiring, you know, genuinely, how are you? Not conversationally, genuinely. And the answers are, are getting pretty scary because some aren't that great. Well, it's interesting to hear you describe that because we have obviously spoken about transitions this afternoon and the, the subtext seems to have been that they're always negative, that there's always something bad to reflect on, whereas you're thinking about framing it in a positive sense. Uh, what are some of the ways then that people can do that? Yeah, it's, it's really difficult at times because if you think about every single keynote talk you've heard, be it on TED, YouTube, even the U Sports Trust, I used to be a bit of an athlete mentor for them as they delivered their CSR programme um, nationwide. So I heard about 30, 40 different athletes talk and there was always this emphasis about a negative. Now, what they did, because they're great orators and tell a good story around it, is then flip it and show resilience and courage and determinism to get over that initial flaw. But ultimately, there is more of an engagement nationwide, certainly in the UK, with a negative. The difficulty is then to say to people, OK, we've discussed the negative, we've understood that element of it. However, then how do you get to the next procedure? How do you get to the positive element? So what I'm now doing, and certainly the work I'm doing through, through Work Athlete, is to try and get people first off to think about the positives. And actually what's really interesting, again, align the theory from positive psychology to the working practice. There's a ratio that's been delivered, been scientifically proven, for how much positivity and how much negativity a person should be having to get the best balance. And actually it's three to one. Three to one positive affects to one negative one. Because you have too many positive situations, you get hit with a negative one, it absolutely sidelines you. Whereas conversely, if you have too many negative situations, then the positive ones are drip-fed, they don't make enough impact. So if you get that balance right, 
uh, of around about three to one ratio from positive to negative, then that is where you can best flourish. So I'm not saying be high in life every single day, so you understand that it is a fluctuative process. You are going to go through points where you are low. How do you get over it? And again, that's where theory helps. And how important is storytelling? Of course, it can be very powerful to have a compelling narrative, especially in sport. We see it all the time. But in your view, Rob, how important is storytelling in what you're trying to do in helping people making that transition? I think it's in everything. It's in schooling. It's in education. You know, it's actually in parenting. Um, and I saw a wonderful video, Steve Kerr, talking to the Golden State Warriors about an anecdote, a story, you know, talking to Durant, one of the best players in NBA, and he gave him a story. He didn't say do this, do that. He gave him an analogy about how Michael Johnson, when he was playing, uh, Michael Jordan, sorry, when he was playing, went through these types of differentiated. So if you think about how good an orator can be, and I listened to an incredible amounts of podcasts, they're always good storytellers, because people then associate in their own way. You give them parameters, then they become fixed with it. You give them a framework that they can expand on and develop, then that's where learning is at its best. And then you can establish that balance between positive and negative feelings, stories and ideas. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, you look at it individually, and I'll throw a bit more theory because probably not done enough. <laughs> There's around about 350 ways of coping with negative affects. So when things happen to people in a negative context, there's so many countless ways that can be done. However, they're all categorised into three different ways. So there can be task-based avoidance, sorry, task-based, emotional-based, and avoidance. Three specific ways of dealing with an incredible amount, over 350 ways of dealing with negative affects. So start the analogy around that and start almost putting people in the position so you've had a bad day, something's gone really wrong. What was your next action to get you out of it? And for some people, it is that casual walk down the street, the walk in the park, the headphones are on, there's an emotional connection to a song, to a person, to a friend. All of these contribute and people be able to deal with a negative, but put a positive spin on it. And you mentioned players who might come to you after you've had, you've had a talk, had a session, two or three maybe. Mm. Do players ever reach out to you independently? Do they send you an email, drop you a line? Do you ever hear from players at all outside of that? sort of environment yeah and I do try and put myself in that environment to say you know if you did want to have a chat about it just just send me a note or send me a text whatever um, there's a few players that do I, I think it's quite interesting also there's people that are becoming more contemplative so either they're becoming through the process of the end of the career or they're going through a life change you know be it with kids or marriage where things do present very different situations and you know being one of these old heads at a young age married at 25 child at 26 I was always seen as someone who have that bit of maturity uh, and, and you know, ask the questions. That's all people want. And, and if you have that conversation, if you help people out, then not only are you gaining selfishly from that, that ability to help, gratitude is one of the biggest fundamental parts of positive psychology, but actually you're helping them think themselves and, and that's a really powerful thing to do. So yeah, I think it should be encouraged. And in a business context now, I always seek the wise owl. You know, I'm constantly searching for that mentor, for that advisor, for that friend even, that can just be that wise person. I and mean, it's why podcasts have taken off because it's wonderful insight, Absolutely. readily available, and you can take from what you want from it. And is it also about maintaining those relationships? You're not just uh, going into a fresh group of people and helping them to identify a problem. There's also an element of it, I imagine, where they can maintain their mental well-being. Yeah, and, and you've got to be careful that you don't try and canvas too many people and, and 
dilute what it is you're trying to do. I'd say, you know, look for that smaller number of people and genuinely help them. And, and that might be through hookups or a simple facilitation of one or two contacts you might have in their field that they want to get into. And yeah, I think that's where you've got to get it right and, and throw it back at them because ultimately you're not going to do it for them. They have to do it. There has to be accountability. But if you can help along that way, then I'm all for it. And how important has it been for former players to come forward, um, the likes of Duncan Bell, Nolly Waterman, Jack Berger, for example, mm. speaking about their mental struggles, has that been a game changer at all? I think it has because it goes to the wider world, doesn't it? It's trying to talk to that person who is going through those emotions presently that don't feel they can talk about it, but then you see someone else do the same thing and then it gives you a bit of courage and you know, you're know seeing it more and more in this day and age now where it is okay not to be okay. Whilst I always talk about the positive side of things, you know, you have to have that representation of it's all right to have that chat and break down that bravado. And people are fallible, you know, they're not all conquering people all the time. There has to be a degree of flex. And the likes of Johnny Wilkinson, you know, one of the most revered sports people growing up, me watching him, to hear him talk about his anguish and how he struggled, it's going to give that degree of hope or even that bit of courage to the person who's going through a down day to know, well, if Johnny Wilkinson did it and look what he achieved, then why not have a chat about it? So, yeah, I think it's going to be a great thing and it's happening not just in sport now. We can see pretty much a shift globally for how these conversations are coming out. Yeah, and it sounds pretty powerful. Mm, it does, yeah, yeah. And you've mentioned that you speak to people who are quite young, teenagers and people who are obviously a bit older. Uh, we already mentioned veterans. Uh, mm. Can you point to any differences, Rob, in the way your message is received by different age groups? Yeah, and I think the fundamental part to realise, and I'm talking specifically about rugby here, is that you are in a very, very privileged position. That you can get thousands and tens of thousands of people coming to watch this spectacle at the weekend because it's a thing that they've grown up admiring or even perhaps playing. Uh, and that, that takes a while to sink in really because there are so many opportunities within a rugby club and a community that are untapped and players don't perhaps realise how important that is. So one of the biggest things I realise when I do a bit of talking to players is that the younger generations, they're nowhere near realising how powerful that is and the older players realise it but want to do something about it. And that's probably the biggest shift and I'm talking specifically about the transition again because what you need is opportunity. You might well be self-aware, you might be reflective, you might be retiring from a really professional career but then you still need that opportunity to do something with that skill set. So rugby specifically provides the opportunity, it's realising it, it's finding that situation. And again, this is why I point out how important the RPA is because it takes one networking event to go and meet a person, to build a relationship with them who only want to help you. And that might start off with because you're a rugby player, but it will probably end with you're a wonderful human being with these great traits that are only going to benefit an organisation. So I don't think the younger generation, I talk between 18 and 25 year olds, they don't realise how incredibly gifted their skill set is irrelevant of sport. And when I ask people all over, what do you think the most terrific traits are of these sports people? The same characteristics are always said, determination. They talk about a focus, a commitment, a will to win or whatever it is. Yet it's never about the fact that probably it's them being 19 and a half stone and can run 100 metres in you know, 12 seconds. You know, physically, they are anomalies. But that's not what differentiates them. It's always that association with their psychology. So tap into that resource and find opportunity. You combine the two together, you're going to have a successful transition. Right, you've cited some of the differences there between younger and older players. Yeah. But sometimes you'll be talking to groups who are obviously mixed. There'll be different age ranges and whatnot. And when you ask them to go into groups, does it help that they are of different age? 
Yeah, and you're always going to get that in a in a change room and in a rugby club or even any sports club, and that's why sports such a wonderful vehicle and an anecdote to the powers of performance because you've got to interact on any given day with people of, of a different gender, different age gap, different role. Everyone's got to come together, got to communicate what it is they're trying to achieve and then drive it forward. And, and that that's business on a daily basis. Yet the bigger thing I find from a sports setting, they don't have that much diversity. Yes, okay, you mentioned age and the difference between an 18-year-old and a 30-year-old these days is phenomenally big and a huge, huge change. But at the same time, you're not interacting with... You know, 40, 50-year-old ladies, for example. When I first went into that corporate environment and um, working in insurance at the time, it's a very different conversation with those people than you're used to in, in like a change room where it's very alpha male-driven. So straight away, you look at about how you're going to expose yourself to those types of environments that you're not going to create a bit of a shock because it is quite different in how you communicate, in how abrupt you can be. That if I've got an issue with you in a sports team, I can fundamentally come up to you, question you to your face with a degree of aggression, perhaps, but at the same time, that's not going to work at all. I mean, if you think about the analogy I give, there is no HR in a rugby club. You know, there is no policies about how you necessarily communicate with people. Yet you do any amount of that in a in an environment where there's you know people around, even with an earshot, you're going to find yourself in trouble. So that is definitely something that needs thought and probably drains a lot of energy that people who are very much characters and personalities within a sporting setting have to learn that sometimes the hard way. And have you worked with people in individual sports as well? Because I would like to ask you if you've noticed any differences between people who are in individual sports, individual athletes, and of course people in a team sport like rugby. Yeah, so Ben mentioned the YSC, so the Youth Sports Trust, had an athlete mentor programme. One of the big things they were about was developing them. So we had a lot of development days, a lot of time spent, CPD if you call it that. Um, just having conversations with each other. I work really closely, and actually she's one of my um, top speakers work athlete um, she's a boxer uh, ex-thai world champion now gb boxer she's also a physio and mum of twins wonderful wonderful human and my first question to her when we started digging deep about it all, was going rach i really do find it hard sometimes to comprehend how you do all that you do without a team that it's so individual she says well you say i don't have a team i've got a coach i've got perhaps a sparring partner i've got a physio whatever those types of things yeah but i'm talking about a wider network like 40 or 50 people that any given day you can have a really different, inspiring conversation with. It's a different setting, a different environment. And then she, she came around to thinking, that actually, yeah, you are pretty lucky in a team sport. And the psychology, certainly, of golfers is a completely different entity that you have to consider all they go through. And they're out there competing with themselves every single time they go out there. And that, for me, is pretty inspiring. You know, you've got the, the luxury of having a team. I think I've had it easy to call upon that network of people. So, yeah, very much is a different conversation and one I still, to this day, find intriguing. And I like to work more with individual sports because the questions they pose develop a whole different degree of mental toughness for me. And you've already mentioned podcasts. Is there anywhere else that you look for inspiration for providing content for your talks and your thoughts about the whole scene, I guess? Yeah, I've got a hell of a shelf. I've got a bookshelf. I'd like to say all of them have been read cover to cover countless times but sadly not I've probably got that many books they don't get read enough um, but I think you know I talk about fixed mindset growth mindset that's a wonderful thing what I'm reading at the moment is the 10 different types of human um, Sabian's another really good book so when I start talking to people it's not just an experience of sport it's a mixture of um, you know a bit of life experience albeit not a huge amount in terms of the corporate setting um, much to my uh, 
own choice, actually. But it's about having that anecdote and say you can have a different point of reference, perhaps even giving them something to read. I mentioned before the reason why podcasts are so good is because people's learning styles tend to be quite fractured now. That You can listen to a podcast whilst driving and suddenly you're absorbing information you wouldn't normally do. So books for me are always going to be the default. You highlight, you reflect, you take it away. Uh, another thing is is just having conversations with high-performing people that in my, my own transition came up with a work ethic concept around about 18 months before I had to retire, so it was there to fly. And in my any time I had off, in my down days or even my off-season, I was just touring the UK, pulling in contacts, seeing how they worked, seeing their physical setting, um, seeing how much activity was in those places of work and ultimately just throwing myself into different learning environments. And that's been pretty pretty influential in terms of what I've done since actually so yeah really really big on learning and finally Rob how do you see the mental wellness space developing particularly in rugby and how do you see your involvement in that developing in the months and years ahead yeah I think it's much more of a support base John so the more we talk about having not just PDMs covering two or three clubs it's about having every club having that person that can be their transition manager perhaps in-house whilst the RPA look after two or three clubs but if it's a resource they don't have enough funds you know they're at out and out charity they fundraise for every single penny they get in conjunction with the RFU so um, the more that is given to the players in terms of resource in terms of development in terms of networking opportunities the better can I help with that of course I can I want to build ties with clubs I want to give a little bit of insight and, and ultimately pull people through and, and help them with it at the same time I'm still in a point of transition. I'm still understanding what it is that I can be doing and, and that's the best example I can give. That if if people are having the conversations that are seeking opportunity, finding opportunity and developing them, then the whole scene is going to improve. So rugby for me is, is up there at the forefront. The PCA, the Cricket Association, are also up there. They're really positive. The only other one of reference would be probably the League Managers Association. They're really big on their network of people. So between the three, in terms of the sporting element, there are a lot. So I can't not mention things like, you know, leaders performance, sports performance concepts where you can really show that the message of sport are a powerful anecdote. They're revered around the world, but ultimately it's transitioning those messages into the place of business. That seems like a wonderful place to leave it. Rob Bickerman, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, John. It's been wonderful to chat.